Bullying and victimization among children is relatively common. Little is known, however, about the subsequent developmental course of the child and the effect on mental health during adolescence. I'm Dr. Ken Flagel, Senior Editor at the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I have with me three of the authors of a longitudinal research article on peer victimization, published in CMAJ. Professor Marie-Claude Geoffroy and Dr. Joanne Renaud are joining me from Montreal, and Professor Louise Arsenault is calling from London, England. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hello. Rather than introducing you, as usual, I thought I would ask each of you to tell us about yourselves. So, hello. So, my name is uh, Marie-Claude Geoffroy. I'm an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University. And I'm also a clinical psychologist specializing in therapy with adolescents uh, affected by severe mood disorders and suicidal thoughts at the Douglas Mental Health University Institute. I'm, I'm conducting research on uh, risk and resilience factors involved in suicidal thoughts and behavior and uh, associated mental disorders. And lastly, I have been particularly interested to understand the contribution of uh, peer victimization and maltreatment in influencing uh, later susceptibility for mental health and suicide. My name is Joanne Renaud. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist at uh, McGill University. I am the senior fellow of, of Manu Life Center for Breakthroughs in Teen Depression and Suicide Prevention. I work at the Douglas Institute in Montreal. Uh, I'm the leader of a specialized outpatient clinic for depressive and suicidal disorders for youth. Hi, my name is Louise Arsenault and I'm professor of developmental psychology at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London in the UK. I am also the Mental Health Leadership Fellow for the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK. I have been conducting research on the impact of uh, being bullied on children and adolescent mental health problems for the past 15 years. Let's start by clarifying exactly what we're talking about. Uh, you have two technical terms early on in your paper. Professor Arsenault, could you please explain to us what you mean by the term peer victimization? So peer victimization is a form of victimization that takes place between people of about the same age. So it can happen between young children, it can happen between um, teenagers, or it can happen between um, adults, basically. And it is different. It's probably a wider term compared to what we know of bullying. So many people may confuse bullying and peer victimization, but peer victimization is wider form. It includes many more forms of um, violent behavior or abusive behavior. Bullying um, is specific in the sense that it takes place between people where you have an imbalance of power, whereby it's more difficult for the victims to defend themselves. And later in the paper, you introduced the expression victimization trajectory. Could you tell us for the non-psychiatrist, psychologist, exactly what you mean? In the context of this study, I think that victimization trajectory meant um, the changes or the transition, you know, through the years for a child to be victimized or not being victimized. So 
being, you know, being the victim of abuse or um, of violent behavior is not necessarily something stable, but it can happen repeatedly over time. Um, and the trajectories just assess the extent to which um, a kid has been victimized repeatedly over time. Professor Geoffroy, what? why did you and your colleagues want to do this study? Yes, to answer the question, I would like to give a bit of background because the consequences of a peer victimization on adolescent mental health has been well documented in the literature. And there are uh, results from well-designed uh, studies that have shown that children who have been exposed to peer victimization are more likely to be affected by mental health problems. So we already know that. But most studies uh, reporting on peer victimization and mental health have focused on victimizations assessed at only point at one point in time only, without like considering the fact that victimization can vary in duration and severity over time. So um, to our knowledge, there are no study uh, that have investigated uh, peer victimization trajectories, like from the time uh, children entered the formal school system in kindergarten to early adolescence. And this is a really important period in the life course because it is when social relationships are developing, laying the foundation for future relationships while peer victimization is at its highest rate. So the first reason why this study was done is to better understand the condition in terms of severity and duration under which uh, victimization experiences are likely to affect mental health. And then I would like also to, to say that while it is known that victimization could lead to mental health consequences, it is less clear whether exposure to victimization can lead to mental health problems serious enough to um, interfere with day-to-day -day functioning in adolescence. So the second reason why we uh, conducted this study is just to assess whether children exposed to victimization will develop mental health problems in mid-adolescence associated with impairments in their functioning, could be at school, at home, with their friends or their romantic partner. Who were the participants in your study and how did you go about addressing these issues? So um, our participants are from the Quebec Longitudinal Study of Child Development. Uh, the abbreviation of the cohort is QLSCD. The QLSCD is a representative sample of more than 2,000 babies born in Quebec in the late 90s. So this means that our participants are just turning 20 years old now. And since the birth survey in 98, they have been like 10 waves of data collection in childhood, and three waves in adolescence. And over the, the course of the court participant lives, the QLSCD has collected information on various aspects of their life, including physical, educational, and psychological development, socioeconomic circumstances in which they grew up, their health status, uh, and of course, uh, their experience of peer victimization. All right. I've just warned readers of the paper that there are a lot of statistics in this paper, and some of them are quite novel and imaginative to an editor, so we're going to try and help you understand the results. Professor Geoffroy, what were the main results of your study? Okay, I will start by describing the results on peer victimization trajectories. 
So from age 6 to 13 years of age, participants were asked questions about the experience of victimization since the beginning of the school year. So, for instance, they were asked whether uh, they have been called names or whether they have been excluded from group. And to take advantage of, of uh, our repeated measures, because we had a lot of information collected on peer victimization over time, we, we use a statistical uh, approach named group-based trajectories. And this method allows to identify a group of children exposed to different levels of peer victimization over time. And uh, from that model, we identify three uh, groups of peer victimization. So the first group that we identify comprises 26% of the children. Those children who are not victimized are exposed to very low level of victimization across the education. The second group identified uh, was the largest group. It includes 59% of children. Those were exposed to moderate level of victimization. So this includes kids who are sometimes called name and excluded from group. Uh, the third group includes 15% of the children, and those were exposed to the highest levels of victimization across years. So they were uh, exposed to the highest level from age six in kindergarten up to the transition uh, to high school at age 13. So those children were probably called names or excluded from groups often or very often uh, during a school year with repetition of this pattern uh, over time. For the moderate and severe trajectories, there was a decrease in victimization over time. And this result is telling us that uh, children who are exposed to the highest level of victimization during their first years of elementary school uh, experience uh, a decrease as the children grow older. And this is this may be because children acquire more social and assertive skills with time. But nevertheless, children belonging to the severe trajectory were still exposed to the highest level of victimization in high school. The life of an elementary school child is rough and tumble. Um, sometimes you can think you're being victimized and maybe it's just within the limits of normal. Did, did all of the children answer for themselves? And were, were, was this a live interview or how did you gather the information from the children? So the questionnaire of victimization is self-reported. So the children answer from, from their self, the perception, their per perception about the peer victimization. How confident are you that the children are sharing the same sense of what constitutes abnormal victimizing behavior and is just otherwise just normal behavior? Yeah, so the questionnaire was about the frequency, but it's right that it's linked, like it's the perception, but it's frequency, whether we have like seven uh, behaviors uh, and uh, children have to answer whether they have been exposed like rarely, sometimes, often or very often. And for sure, there are like error, uh, measure, measurement errors, but uh, the group trajectories uh, allow us to take all the information in consideration and to identify a group of children who consistently answer across years uh, that they have been exposed to the highest level of victimization. So the beauty of the design of the study is we do have a, a level of exposure into three compartments 
which will allow us to have a kind of dose-response assessment. What mm -hmm. exactly did you see when you looked at the children later in their adolescence? So one interesting finding is that there was no association between the moderate victimization trajectories and mental health. But we found a significant association between the severe uh, trajectories of victimization uh, with mental health. So children belonging to the severe trajectories were, uh, were more likely to, uh, to develop internalizing mental health problems during adolescence. All right. I want to come to the special child, the perpetrator. But before we do, uh, you have another technical term in this part of your paper, which the non-psychiatrist psychologist might not understand exactly what you mean. What do you mean by the, the term suicidality? Yes. Suicidality is a broad term to describe experience of uh, serious suicidal ideation and or suicide attempt. It's like it's suicidal ideation and suicide attempt combined. Could you tell us about the special problem of the child who, in addition to being a victim, may also be a perpetrator? Mm -hmm. In our study, we were really interested in uh, assessing the consequences of being victimized, of being a victim only. But it's important to know that a proportion of the kids who are victimized are also victimizing others. So it's a special group who are exposed, who can develop like um, different risk of mental health problems. And to be sure that we assess only the consequence of victimization for victim only, then we adjusted our uh, result from, uh, for the perpetration of victimization. This is Louise Arsenault. So the bully victims uh, represent a small group of children who are both victimized but also perpetrate bullying behaviors. And um, they are the group of children who are involved in bullying who are the most at risk for developing the most severe problems but also the widest range of difficulties through life. So when we think about interventions or if we think about um, special group of people who need more um, targeted interventions for their involvement uh, in bullying, then they are truly the ones that um, deserve the most attention. Let's come back to the mental health findings in your study. As a parent, I would want to know if my child was kind of disposed to developing mental health and the peer victimization just brought it out or made it worse. What did you do about the risk factors brought by the child or the family situation itself to the school situation? Professor Geoffroy, I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. It's really interesting and important question because adjustment for confounding factors is essential in this kind of research because factors that can increase risk of peer victimization may also contribute to the development of mental health problems. For instance, children who are particularly anxious are more prone to be the target of their peers, and, uh, and childhood anxiety is also a predictor of later uh, anxiety problems in adolescence. In our study, we were very careful in adjusting for confounders. Um, we adjust for a series of confounders, like for a family related variables, like family functioning and family structure hostile reactive parent, parenting, socioeconomic status, maternal depressive symptoms, 
And we also adjusted for children-related variables, like depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, inattention, inattention hyperactivity symptoms, oppositional defiant behavior, and physical aggression symptoms. Um, we've done that to be more confident that we were assessing correctly the consequences of fear victimization in itself on later mental health, independently of uh, factors that are also related to mental health and victimization. Can you tell us anything about the child's position in the family, the children order, the number of children at home, the family circumstances? Hmm. That's a good question, but we haven't, I might say, I, I can say, but it's uh, it's really based on, on descriptive statistics that uh, children were more likely to be the victim of others are also more likely to experience problems at homes. More often, they're likely to come from a broken family or family with lower socioeconomic status or uh Maybe their parents were using as well more um, harsh uh, parenting parenting skills with them. They're more likely to to come from a family with more problems. Thank you, Professor Jeffroy. Your study has many strengths. It's a large cohort study. The data mm -hmm. is collected prospectively with standardized instruments and you have good and complete follow-up information. But the readers always ask themselves, what are the limits on, on believing the results of the study? Could you comment on that, please? Yes. yes. So for obvious reasons, uh, children cannot be randomly assigned to, uh, to peer victimization groups. So because it's not a randomized controlled trials, uh, we are limited in uh, making strong inferences on the effect of uh, victimization on mental health outcomes. And uh, although we control for a wide range of confounding factors, we acknowledge that uh, some uncontrolled variables could, uh, could account for some of the association. Although we were not able to make causal claim, we were able to examine the temporal relation from childhood victimization to mental health in adolescence because of our prospective uh, study design. Also, I would like to add that mental health outcomes were measured by self-report questionnaires, which do not provide clinical diagnosis. Uh, also, although we examine as well a range of, uh, of different mental health problems, some uh, important mental health problems like PTSD symptoms were not assessed. But to be sure that we were assessing serious mental health problems, we used um, uh, an interference scale to, uh, to really focus on mental health problems that can interfere with day-to-day -day functioning during adolescence. Professor Arsenault, what can we do to reduce or eliminate the occurrence of peer victimization so early in a child's life? Well, I think that we can do two things in terms of prevention um, strategies. And the first one is um, when a child is victim of peer victimization is probably to build resilience for this kid. Um, so, and, you know, the type of action can vary from just acknowledging that the kid has been a victim to seeking out to um, mental health professional if needed. So if we already see kind of um, symptoms of mental health problems, then I think it's 
important that we seek mental health services, but sometimes it doesn't require that. Quite often, it's it's really just acknowledging and providing simple support to the kids uh, to make sure that they build um, strength and the developed skills to be able to face this adverse situation. Um, but another strategy would be probably to kind of prevent or make sure that the kids do not become a victim of their peer. And there are there could be some public health. Um, interventions aiming at young children developing skills to build good relationships, develop friendships, maintaining friendships, which could be a way to protect them from becoming the victim of um, of violent uh, behaviors from their peers. So that could be another prevention strategy, which is at a different level. So the first one is really building resilience in those victims, because we know that there will always be victims of uh, of peer violent behaviors but the other one is to prevent kids from being victimized and so how how can parents build resilience into their child specifically um well here in the uk we have a study where we've looked at young children who've been bullied um which is one form of peer victimization and we focus on the kids who were doing well despite the fact that they were bullied and we tried to understand whether there was anything in their family environment which may have protected them from developing mental health problems after being bullied and what we found was that Children who were coming from a structured family environment where um, there was some kind of um, a schedule and they had space and importance in the family environment were more likely to do better and not develop mental health problems after being bullied compared to kids who've been bullied but didn't have this kind of environment. Um, And we found similar results for kids who had um, loving and caring relationship with their mother. So mothers seems to have, um, or I would say parents, in our case, we studied mothers because they're the one who um, filled the forms, basically. But uh, the kids who kind of benefited from good relationships uh, at home, so either with mothers or with their siblings, were more likely to cope better after being bullied than kids who didn't have these kind of relationships. So quite often, by experience, Lots of families, when they know that a kid has been bullied, they will take the problem to the schools and they will ask the staff at school to solve the problem and to sort it out. When actually people in the family, you know, parents and siblings should realize that they can make it easier for the kid who've been who's been bullied, you know, for coping with this situation. Are there any implications for the way school life is structured that could be under that could be changed or are undertaken at an institutional level? Absolutely, I think that any interventions will have to work together with the schools to implement maybe a way of thinking or a way of dealing with those um, those kind of behaviors. But far from me, the idea of imposing more work to the teachers or more responsibilities on the on the head teachers. Um, but I I think it's it's probably kind of coming together and and finding a way of addressing these situations and and probably kind of um, trying to tackle the ethos and the atmosphere in, in the school and, you know, sometimes not allowing certain behaviors to take place on the grounds of the schools. Dr. Renault, how do physicians fit into the prevention and treatment of peer victimization and coping with the ensuing mental health problems? 
physicians may play an active role, simply asking about peer victimization during the routine medical appointments with teenagers. If the answer to the question is yes, then physicians may proceed with questions regarding type of victimization, frequency, intensity, and severity. So progressively, physicians may continue with questions around depression, anxiety, school avoidance, and even nightmares pointing to different mental health problems, including the post-traumatic stress disorder. So finally, it's very important to inquiry about suicidality. So asking about suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideations, or even suicide attempts or gestures and anger issues. So if the clinical interview is revealing victimization, physicians should invite the parents to join their teenager and discuss the situation all together. They may revise the different psychological and physical symptoms, considering the new information if the parents were not aware of this information. So the physicians may explain, I think it's very important in a non-judgmental manner, how the parents may support their child or teenager and how to inform school counselors, teachers, or the school principal. It's important to avoid dramatic and strong reactions, which would prevent teenagers' collaboration. So physicians may also collaborate with other mental health and psychosocial professionals, and depending on the severity of the situation, physicians may want to consult a child and adolescent psychiatrist or other psychosocial professionals such as uh, youth protection services, if needed. Dr. Renault, you've just been mentioning the important role of parents. What would be your advice to the parents of a child who's being victimized or of a child who is a bully? It must be just really agonizing for parents whose child is doing that, almost, almost worse than having a child who's a victim. So parents need to get the psychoeducation related to victimization and be aware of the mental health issues that can emerge. Parents should get involved with the school system as both parties have the responsibility to protect children and adolescents, making sure that a safe school environment for education and development is available. Parents should not blame themselves and avoid strong judgment at large since it's stressful and it's a sensitive situation for all both teenagers and parents. So you can imagine if you have a kid who is the bullier, so who is the person who victimized uh, other kids at school, so the parent will feel very ashamed and probably will feel or very insecure or aggressive towards the school system. So really, I think that parents should be involved, should get all the knowledge and the psychoeducation that is needed, and then help their kids to behave well but also to be safe at school. So for those who might have oppositional defiant disorders or conduct disorders, they may get help, specialized program. And we know that the family has really uh, has to be involved completely in the treatment plan. So I'm going to go around the table once more before we end the podcast to ask each of you in turn what what in your mind is the most important message to come away from this paper? Could we start with Professor Geoffroy? Yes, of course. So I think the most important message is that 
we found that children were exposed to the highest level levels of peer victimization over the education with, uh, were at increased risk of developing serious mental health problems. And those were more internalizing mental health problems rather than externalizing problems. So they were more likely to develop depression and uh, dysthymia uh, problems, to develop generalized anxiety problems, social phobia problems, and to think about suicide and have attempted suicide. So it's pretty clear that peer victimization can can be associated with uh, later adolescent uh, mental health problems. And this needs to be uh, taken into account while developing uh, preventive strategies for uh, adolescents' mental health. Professor Louise Arsenault. Well, I think that for me, the most striking finding was about the uh, victimization trajectories, um, which is a very useful way for identifying children who are more most likely to experience mental health problems because they've been victimized. So we know that victimization is quite common amongst um, young children. So if we have to focus um, some of our energy in preventing mental health problems in young children, those who are chronically victimized are probably a good target for those interventions. And Dr. Renault. So I think uh, teenagers who have been victimized Uh, should be seen as having a risk factor for suicide completion. Therefore, they should seek uh, services and evaluation to make sure that they don't suffer from depression, anxiety, or other types of mental health disorders. So if we need to think about suicide prevention, I think peer victimization became some of the risk factors. Colleagues, I thank you for speaking with us today. I've been speaking with Mary-Claude Jaffois, clinical psychologist at the Douglas Institute in Montreal, Dr. Joanne Renault, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and lead of the Depressive and Suicidal Disorders Clinic for Youth at the Douglas Institute, as well as Louise Arsenault, Professor of Developmental Psychology at King's College, London, England. Along with their co-authors, they published a research article on childhood peer victimization in the CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes. Thank you for listening. 